Thanks for listening to this episode of the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, Executive Editor at First Word Pharma Plus. On this week's show, I catch up with my colleague Becky Simon to discuss Pfizer's eye-watering sales forecast for its COVID-19 vaccine and the decision by the Biden administration to support a temporary lift on the intellectual property protection for this and other COVID-19 vaccines in a bid to boost global supply. Both Pfizer and Moderna this week have um, released their first quarter financial results and in doing so have given us um, a a first kind of um, insight into the revenues that are being generated by their respective COVID-19 vaccines. Um, Pfizer reported first quarter sales worth uh, $3.5 billion for its vaccine and Moderna just earlier today um, announced that they generated sales of $1.7 billion in the first quarter for their vaccine. Um, sales of the AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccine were notably lower uh, at around $275 million. They were reported by AstraZeneca last week. I guess the figure that kind of jumps out, or the figures that jump out even more, um, are the fact that Pfizer is modelling um, full-year sales of $26 billion dollars Uh, from its vaccine alone. Uh, I think earlier this year it had suggested that sales this year could be around $15 billion, so that's nearly doubled. And in reality, this could actually go up again. Um, The $26 billion uh, figure is actually based on contracts uh, signed as of mid-April. Pfizer says it has the capacity this year to make two and a half billion doses um, and the contracts it has already signed um, account for production of 1.6 billion doses. So still some some significant capacity there. And Moderna, um, I believe, uh, based on on comments that have been made today, are expecting sales of up to $19 billion uh, for their vaccine in, in 2021. Becky, what, what do you kind of make of these numbers? They're kind of, I mean, I, I guess they're, they're not unexpected, but they're still kind of slightly eye-watering. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, you know, like you said, the, the biggest take-home point of these is, you know, there's sort of nowhere to go but up, even at these really sort of astronomical letter, levels for, uh, for Pfizer and Moderna in particular. Um, so it, you know, both kind of puts very high expectations on these companies, you know, moving forward as we go through the year where, you know, oh, heaven forbid Pfizer might be in trouble if they only end up selling, um, you know, $30 billion worth of vaccines uh, for the year, which is just, you know, ridiculous to think about. Um, But like you mentioned, they're still, um, Pfizer is upping its uh, manufacturing capacity for the year. and I don't think we need to assume that, you know, they're going to be staying at that $2.5 you know, billion dollar dose level um, because, I mean, that is just a number that has been, uh, you know, inching higher um, for, you know, a year now as the, as the company works through its um, uh, production uh, scale-ups. Um, and, and towards the end of the year, we'll be looking at um, a lot more data from uh, adolescent populations in particular. 
Um, so getting like the 12 to 18 year olds and then the uh, two to 12 year old populations um, and getting those groups vaccinated are only gonna bump up those numbers, you know, a little bit more. So <laughs> lots more to see. Okay, yeah. I mean, to put the the anticipated performance of, of Pfizer and BioNTech's vaccine into context, I mean, we've, we've, we've never had a drug or a vaccine franchise that's generated annual sales of, of anywhere near $25 billion. And, and, it, and it looks like they're gonna exceed that benchmark. Um, I mean, com by comparison, I think um, AbbVie's TNF inhibitor Humira is, is on track to generate about $20 billion this year. Um, Keytruda, which has obviously kind of become a cornerstone oncology drug, I think is on track to make about $18 billion. I guess the other way of looking at this, and it's obviously un completely unprecedented times, but I, I think um, Gilead's Harboni, which was uh, a, you know, a treatment for hepatitis C, I think that made about $10 billion in its first four quarters on the market when it launched in 2014. So these kind of benchmarks are, are being, um, are being uh, or are set to be broken by, by the Pfizer vaccine this year and indeed sort of run pretty close by, by Moderna's vaccine as well. Um, I guess the other thing we should talk about um, in terms of where those revenues potentially go um, you know, this year and next year, and then I, I guess beyond that, we did see Moderna also announced this week that they've kind of um, got positive data um, looking at a modified version of their vaccine um, against one or two, I think it is, particular variants of COVID-19. Obviously, one of the things that these two companies have been kind of promoting and pushing in recent months is the idea that you can sort of rapidly um, modify these messenger RNA vaccines so that you can start, you know, uh, inoculating people against potential variants of concern. Uh, how do you kind of think, you know, how how much of a durable kind of franchise do you think these are potentially going to turn into for, for these companies? Yeah, so the way uh, Moderna has spoke about this previously, you know, is to say, effectively that priority number one is variant control you know where they can spend you know two or three years playing catch up um, on these variants that emerge um, while we have sort of this um, incomplete uh, vaccination um, and then after that they can start thinking about um, just uh, systematic boosters you know population-wide as you know immunity wanes to um, whichever, uh, you know, cocktail of variants um, they've, you know, selected as, as the most important sort of analogous to a, a flu vaccine, I suppose. Um, so, uh, I, and I think, you know, Moderna has definitely, you know, demonstrated that they can execute on this sort of rapid turnaround of, um, you know, getting, uh, vaccines targeted against these variants, which is, you know, the real fundamental question for whether they can um, sort of turn this into a, uh, a long-term revenue stream. You know, first they have to show that they can keep up with the virus intrinsically. Um, so, but I think the, the interesting bit is less about the variant control. Um, I think it will be relatively easier, easy to, you know, convince, um, you know, governments to, you know, keep 
um, keep putting shot, shots in arms um, with those kind of variant selective vaccines um, for you know the next couple of years, uh, like Moderna has suggested. Um, I think the more interesting question will be how sustainable this um, kind of population-wide booster scenario is. Um, if if we are having boosters, you know, presumably, sort of, what is the frequency of those shots? Which just comes down to, you know, how long um, in reality is the um, it does this vaccine efficacy last for? Which is sort of a question that we just uh, don't really know the answer to yet, but will be a big driver um, for what this long-term revenue looks like. Okay. Now, obviously, this these revenue projections have sort of created this backdrop um, in the last couple of days for what is probably, I guess, even, you know, has been more bigger headline news, which is the, the, the this, you know, the announcement by the US government that it supports um, a proposal which, which has been put, put forward to temporarily lift the intellectual property protection on these and other um, COVID-19 vaccines. I mean, it, it's, this announcement has brought sort of an instant backlash from the pharma industry. Um, and I think really the idea being that, you know, this potentially sets an unwarranted sort of precedent for other types of drugs in the future. I mean, uh, are we all in agreement, though, that I guess that that's the that, that's the potential damaging thing about this, because the, I think the, the argument, you know, the counter argument is, is this actually going to allow, um, you know, global supply of COVID-19 vaccines to increase? Because that's for all intents and purposes, the intention of the, U the US government, but there seem to be lots of other factors that are actually going to prevent an immediate kind of uh, increase in supply. Yeah, so I saw um, uh, a note yesterday noting that, okay, so uh, between Pfizer and Moderna, you know, they have already committed to, you know, many billions of doses throughout the year. Um, and even just other competing manufacturers within the U.S. of um, mRNA vaccines are having trouble getting the raw materials um, necessary to um, do any, any manufacturing anywhere near the scale of uh, Pfizer or Moderna because they've already just, you know, lapped up all the available inventory of the raw materials you need for this. Um, which is, you know, to say very little of the um, actual technical know-how, you know, manufacturing um, as opposed to, you know, complex manufacturing like vaccines um, as opposed to, you know, relatively simple small molecules. You know, these tend to be um, more heavy in the uh, trade secret style of IP protection as opposed to the um, uh, patent disclosures. Um, so even once even had those raw materials all been procured, you know, the, the biopharma argument is, you know, that is neither, oh, it is necessary, but it is not sufficient um, to uh, get these, to get these shots in arms because you, you know, you need the people that know how to uh, make these products, which just, you know, aren't available in the patent disclosure. I guess that's the other argument is that we need to, uh, or potentially investment needs to be made where possible just to increase, um, I mean, I, I saw someone argue today, increase the manufacturing even in the US um, so that the, the product that's produced there can then be distributed um, around the world rather than sort of just 
making this token gesture potentially of, of lifting the IP and, and, and allowing, you know, technically allowing other people to make it, but, but they're not actually in a position to do so. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of just on a, on a side note that was quite interesting about the, 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 the quarterly results, um, obviously shifting focus back to Pfizer temporarily. I mean, obviously it will be really interesting to see um, what Pfizer does with this, uh, this, this huge increase in revenues. Um, I, I think uh, the CEO did mention that there'll be some focus on uh, um, sort of boosting or bolstering the, 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 the R&D pipeline um, in terms of late stage development for the, for the second half of the decade. I thought the other really interesting thing, um, this was very late last week, but AstraZeneca, who's obviously, you know, faced a, a few kind of PR challenges about its COVID-19 vaccine. Um, they were actually the only um, big pharma company this quarter to, um, to beat revenue expectations. Um, of everyone else is literally has been has been impacted by the pandemic um and i think it, it it's just the sort of a slightly ironic but you know a, a reminder that actually um you know in terms of underlying business you know astrazeneca is is probably one of the strongest performing companies out there at the moment um you know it, they were even saying with, with, with kind of key products like degreso and calquence that they were seeing the impact of the pandemic on um, cancer diagnosis rates, but they were still growing um, enough that the company's top line beat expectations. So I think that's a, just an interesting thing to kind of point out. Um, just moving away from, from, from COVID-19 vaccines to kind of sort of round out um, what we're talking about. Um, Becky, I know you looked this week at um, some new data that was presented um, for Sarepta's latest um, bid to sort of improve um, the, the treatment options for Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, can you sort of talk a little bit more about what they presented and, and why it's potentially important? Yeah, so uh, Sarepta's um, data last week was from a, um, I guess we'll call it a next generation version um, of its existing Exxon skipping platform. Um, so they currently have three approved products, you know, most famously uh, Exondus 51, um, that all rely on this um, Exxon skipping of um, the, you know, mutation of choice in the uh, dystrophin gene to produce this um, truncated, but still, you know, mostly functional protein. Um, and Exondus, which was approved back in, you know, 2016 is, you know, very famous for its very controversial approval um, where it's the company still hasn't shown um, any confirmatory data to show an actual, you know, functional benefit uh, in DMD patients beyond um, the uh, not particularly robust increase in dystrophin expression that they see. Uh, so what Sarepta has done since is, uh, you know, tweaked its, um, its molecular structure for these uh, exon skipping compounds. So they've, um, uh, the goal is to make them more cell penetrant to increase potency. Um, and they released data um, recently walking through um, their uh, go forward dose, uh, the dose they take to the FDA to discuss registrational trials. 
um, from their uh, Exxon 51 targeting version of this platform. So this would be effectively the direct, you know, successor to Exxonus 51 and, you know, hopefully show a little more, a um, uh, little stronger efficacy uh, than the first go round. Um, so the good news for Sarepta is that they definitely got uh, higher levels of dystrophin expression. Um, I want to say about eightfold higher uh from a at an earlier time point than they had previously measured with uh with exondus 51. um so you know that's great news that they can uh get this uh you know superior um biomarker response effectively but they also had um a rougher go on their safety profile there were um uh, a high prevalence of grade four adverse events um on either uh, just uh, electrolyte levels were strikingly reduced in these patients. Um, and the company thinks that it's probably interacting with a uh, magnesium uh, transporter also. Um, so, I mean, Sarepta is going to take this data to the FDA and try to design a registrational study around it. Um, and it will be uh, yeah, interesting to see, you know, of course, the functional data is, you know, what matters at the end of the day. And we've seen previously from their uh, gene therapy study um, earlier in the year that you know increases increases in dystrophin, you know, much higher than we're seeing um, from this exon skipper. You know, it didn't necessarily produce a functional benefit. Um, so it'll be you know very interesting to see you know once the company gets around to this confirmatory data, which is of course this big issue um, with Sarepta is validating on these um, functional benefit from confirmatory studies.